0: Well, good morning to you and happy Easter. You know, one of the disadvantages of the setup that we have right now is that traditional Christian greeting can get lost. Uh, So I'm going to start it, and you can finish it right there in your living room. So when I say Christ is risen, you say he is risen indeed, okay? So let's give that a shot. Christ is risen. I can't hear you. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed, isn't he? Praise God for that. One of the advantages of this type of a setup is that I can ask you questions like that, and you can respond. You can even respond throughout the sermon if I were to ask you a question, right? Uh, so let's get that started. I'm going to ask you a question about music. Uh, let me give you the background on that. From 1960 to almost 2020, uh, so about 60-year time span, uh, surveys were done of the top 40 music. Uh, music, songs in America, okay, for a 60-year period, and the, the question was, what is the number one topic in all of those top 40 songs? So here's your question. What do you think the top topic was? What do you think? Number one topic for 60 years was love. Love. In fact, through the 80s and on into the 90s, it had over 70% of the, of the votes. Love was the number one topic. Uh, it's not just that love was the number one topic, but think about it. If it had over 70%, that means that, it, that more songs were about love than all the other topics combined. Not just love, but more often than not, it was about, the songs were about bad love. They were about love that was lost. Uh, love that was longed for and never received. Long that was given and not not returned. Some people like, well, Taylor Swift and Waylon Jennings and Luke Bryan make a living out of just talking about bad love. You know, some of the, the songs that, that I remember uh, in, in the past would be um, things like... Um, I'm not going to sing it. I'm not going to sing it. Um, But you could laugh from your living room, and I wouldn't know it, so maybe I will. Shot to the heart, and you're to blame, darling. You give love, that's right, a bad name. You give love a bad name. People give love a bad name because we don't know how to love. We don't know what it means. We don't understand it. We try to define it according to the pain that we have felt, according to what we have received from imperfect, imperfect love from imperfect people. God brings us love from a different direction. When God defines love as it really is defined, well, everything begins to make sense. This this passage begins to to, um, define that kind of love for us. Read along with me in uh, Mark chapter 12. We'll begin reading in verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, that is, asked Jesus, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, You're right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Can we pray? Father, Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for redirecting us back to love and to who is the source of our love. Father, I pray for all of us and especially for me. Father, that as we open up your word, that you would transform us. Lord, I pray that you would use this broken vessel to pour out clear, clean, living water for your people. Lord, that you might be glorified, that that you might increase and that, that I would decrease. Lord, be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. It, it's, it, Jesus keeps pulling us back to love, doesn't he? A right kind of love, a pure love, a perfect love. In this passage, it, it comes on the heels of some Sadducees, some Pharisees, some scribes, doing everything they could to trip Jesus up. Um, they've been doing it for some time, and as Jesus has moved into Jerusalem, and he's, he's heading towards the cross, they've just picked up the pace a little bit on that. They ask him these questions designed as as serious questions, but they're really just riddles. In almost every situation, Jesus directs them back towards love. In this place, what is is the greatest commandment? Jesus brings it back to love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. But if we go back to the the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's the same thing, right? Right? They're asking him, you know, who is your neighbor, and we're going to trip you up on this. And Jesus directs them through a parable uh, about who their neighbor is to love, back to love. Not just love God, and not just love those that are like you, but love those that are not like you. Love those that you might consider enemies. Love those that might cause you to be unclean. Love. You keep getting pushed back to love. That's where Jesus takes us, or to the rich young ruler when he comes to Jesus and he says what must I do to be saved and Jesus tells him and the guy says hey in arrogance I've done all that I'm good to go anything else and Jesus then tells him yeah take everything that you own sell it all and give it to the poor well that hits what the rich man really loves what Jesus is telling him is love others more than you love yourself you love your money love others take what you have and love others Money only has value as a means of, of loving others. It all comes down to, to love. And love is what Jesus keeps pointing us to because Jesus is love. You say, well, what about faith and repentance? Doesn't Jesus talk about that? Well, he does. In fact, he begins this earthly ministry by, by telling the people to uh, believe and repent, repent and believe. Those are two sides of the same coin, right? If you believe Christ, you will repent. And if you're going to repent, you're only going to do that because you believe, because you have faith. So faith and repentance go together as two sides of the exact same coin. But here's the thing. They also both result in love. Love for God, love for ourselves, and love for others. So they, they come together in that way. The foundation of our relationship with God is love. It's not our obedience. If it was left to our obedience, we would be up a creek without a paddle. We have to have Jesus and his obedience, and the result of his obedience to the Father is our salvation and our love. Let me travel over to 1 Corinthians 13. Go over there with me, just a, a few books to the, to the right. Now, you might know this passage as a, as a wedding passage. Uh, you might be surprised to learn that it's actually a, a chapter of rebuke. It's a love chapter, but it's, it's all about rebuke. The church in, in Corinth had been, um, had been engaging in a lot of things that were not pleasing to the Lord, uh, a lot of things that were corrupt, uh, even perverse, far from God. And so Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth trying to bring them back to, to where, uh, where God has called them in the beginning. He starts it like this in chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain Nothing. And then he gives some positive attributes of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's my way or the highway. It doesn't go there. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, All things endures all things. Love never ends. Then go down to verse 13. He closes out the the passage like this. Now, now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three: faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Jesus is defining that thing that is better than all of the other gifts that you could have had. All of your wealth, all of your, your, your talents. The greatest of all of these is, is love. So he's, he's clarifying that for, not only Paul is clarifying that for the church in Corinth, Jesus is doing that with the Sadducees, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the disciples back in Mark chapter 12. Love is above all else. Even Jesus' motive for everything he did here was love. John 3.16, the only verse I remember learning as a kid. Uh, you grow up in Alabama, even if you 're not a believer you 're going to learn John three sixteen at least you, you, you would have then uh, for God so loved for God so loved right for God so loved the world that He gave his only Son that whoever believed in him will not perish but have everlasting life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him for God so loved so you get, you get god 's motive in all of that, and then you move over to first to John four and it, Love is defined very simply. God is love. God is defined. God is love. The, the two are, are congruent. The two are equal. God is, is love. You want to know what love looks like, you look, you look to God, to his actions towards us. Love is not a, a sentiment. Love is, love is an action. So when the Sadducees have asked Jesus here, what is his greatest commandment? And he comes back and he, he first takes him back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he he opens up the law, but he clarifies it all in just two two bits. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, that's to love God with everything that you are, with every thought that you have, with every every one of your affections with all of your actions with all of your sentiments with all of your words with all of your purpose in life with all of your business endeavors with all of your relationships with everything that you have in your whole world from the time you awaken till the time you sleep and all night long even your dreams are guided and guarded and submitted through love to God the Father. So we love the Lord your God with everything that we have. There's nothing in all creation that is to be separated from that. That love that we have for God, it revolutionizes, it transforms our whole life. This is a great time to to just look at all of the purposes in your life. Uh, all of your relationships, all of even your spending habits. Uh, all of the things that you own or all the things that own you, to look at all of those things and, and put them up under that. Do they do they come in line with, I'm going to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with, with all my strength, with all my mind. It's everything that I have belonging to God. Am I loving Him with that? And then he goes to the next step. He says to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's real easy to just Pass by the yourself part and and just go to how am I going to love my neighbor but if we don't know how to love ourselves, we can't love our neighbor so we, we've got to answer answer that first how do we love ourselves? Well, we love ourselves by doing what is best for us. Um, the problem is we often wrongly define what's best. We might think it's best that we have um, this extra bank account or this extra um, this extra drink or or this extra uh, gold mine, or this extra relationship, or we, they're going to make us happy. Those things are going to make us joyful. Those things aren't necessarily what is best for us, what is truly best according to God. That's, that's where we need to go. So we, the problem is we spend a whole lot more time in the world and listening to the voice of the world, and even the voice of our own flesh, than we do listening to the voice of God. We, we wander around in, in this wilderness of our own sin with this, this deep hunger, this deep, deep, deep hunger that only God is meant to satisfy. But we chase every other means of doing that. We call those idols. We set up idols in our life. Calvin said that the heart is an idol factory. I know mine is. Mine can create all sorts of idols, and, and yours can too. It's those things that we love more than we love God, right? right? So... Um, what are those things in your world? If Until we, we learn to love ourselves by letting go of the idols so that there's nothing between us and the Father, then we won't know how to love anyone else. We need to learn how to see ourselves um, as God truly sees us. Henry Nowen said that the journey from teaching about love to learning to be loved took much longer than I realized. The journey from teaching about love to learning to be loved took much longer than I realized. Henry Nowen, I know that's true for me. It's probably true for you also. For you to truly love yourself, you've got to see yourself as God sees you. Created in his image. He created you and he said it is good. It is very good. In the image of God, he created you. In the image of God, you are created. Psalms 139 tells us that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. See yourself as God sees you, created in His image. And then learn to love yourself as God loves you. God rejoices over you with singing. God loves you enough and sees you as valuable enough to give up His only Son, that you might have life forever with him. There is no greater love than that. So learn to to see yourself as God sees you. Learn to to love yourself as God loves you. And when we begin to do that, then we're going to find that loving others is a natural outflow of that. It, It just happens. Now, we need to make sure that it's intentional, or the natural selfishness in our own soul will, will lead us away from loving others. So, we want to be intentional. We want to be, make, make sure that our love for others is, is a love of action. Uh, Jesus' love going to the cross was intentional. Uh, the prophecies throughout the Old Testament show us that he was pointing towards this moment on the cross. Uh, then, three days, and then a resurrection from the dead. All that was a part of God's sovereign plan, it was intentional. And it was action-oriented. There wasn't, there wasn't just some sappy, wishy-washy sort of sentimentality to it. It was costly. It was a sacrificial love. That kind of love that's intentional, that, that has action to it, that is more than sentiment. Uh, listen, love is a great feeling, but, but that feeling wavers. We act in love even when the feeling isn't there. And we also love, you know, intentionally a- with action, we need to love without um, expecting a return on our investment. The ROI, return on investment for love, can be pretty wimpy. Um, often we, we love because we think we're going to get something back, and that's not a pure love. That's not a love. That's, that's a wage worker exchange. I'm going to work for you by loving you, and then you're going to give me something in return. That's not love. It's something, but it's not love. So love expects nothing in return we love others in that way we have problems with loving god we have problems with loving ourselves we have problems with loving uh each other we in part because we don't we don't trust god Uh, one of the the greatest topics that's going on right now in our world is besides coronavirus is this thing that we're we have coronavirus and, and easter existing side by side and people are asking how can that be How can this God be be trustworthy if there's a coronavirus going on that's that's just wreaking havoc on the world? We don't like what we read about God, maybe, so we don't want to trust him. Here's what Keller says. It's helpful. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he rose from the dead, you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? It doesn't matter. But if he rose from the dead, you have to accept everything he said. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If he rose from the dead, that everything he says matters. It makes sense that we follow the one who has defeated hell and death and sin. 1 Corinthians 15 um, Paul again takes us to a place where he helps us to understand that, that Jesus' resurrection from the grave is a true thing. Let me read a bit of it to you in chapter fifteen, beginning in verse three. This is Paul speaking to the crowd in Corinth. He said, "For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received: that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures; that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures." Isn't that just what Keller just said? If this, if this is true, then everything he did is important. It's crucial. We have to accept it. Paul goes on. And then that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, uh, and then to the 12. What Paul is telling the church in Corinth is, hey, if you, if you have doubts that Jesus rose from the grave, some of those, the, the 12 are still alive. You can, you can go find them. They might even come to Corinth one day. Go find out where they are and question them about this. He goes on, he doesn't just leave it with Peter and the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, there were over 500 witnesses that saw him at one time after he had been crucified and raised from the dead. Listen, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is is not only in in biblical history, it's in secular history. You could go back and you can can read about it in secular historical documents. What Paul is telling the church in Corinth is, there are over 500 people that saw him at one time, and there's no way they could all get their story to be the same, unless it was all true. So you go to these 500, most of them are still alive, he's telling the church in Corinth, go find them. Paul would not have made this claim if he thought that any of those 12 would have come up with a different story. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, last of, of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me it had to be true think about the way some of the stories are told in, in the gospels for example the first ones to see the empty tomb women the first one to see Jesus says you know she thought he was a gardener a woman women's their testimony wasn't allowed in court no one would have believed a testimony from a woman if these apostles were trying to put forth a hoax that Jesus rose from the dead, they wouldn't have used a woman as their first witness or as any of their witnesses, right? So the very fact that, that they've used a woman tells us that it had to be a true statement, a true account of what actually happened. We have to trust who Jesus is, that he really has conquered sin, hell, and death and risen from the grave. So one of our troubles with love is that we don't trust Jesus. Another trouble that we have with love is that we, we prefer our performance over love. I, yeah, I know that doesn't make sense maybe. Why would you prefer performance over love? We prefer performance because we can control performance. We can't control love. Uh, when I was in high school, I was a wrestler. I wasn't a great wrestler, but but I was on a great team, and so we wrestled a lot of other great teams. And uh, one particular match, I was a junior, and I was wrestling, wrestling a guy named Joey. Uh, Joey had been state champion the year before and the year before that. Uh, it had been over a year since Joey had, been, uh, had had a wrestling match where he didn't pin every opponent. Every opponent he had faced for over a year, he had pinned. And, uh, you know, the, the betting on my team was what round I would be pinned in. Uh, not whether I would win or whether I would be pinned, but what round would I be pinned in, first, second, or third. I had one goal. I wanted to keep from being pinned by Joey. So we, we get into it, and, and he takes me down just like that because he was very good, and, and I just wasn't. Uh, and uh, next thing I know, I'm on my back, and, and I did what, what we call in wrestling a bridge. You know, I'm up on the back of my head, and the, ba- the bottoms of my feet are on the mat. The rest of me is just an arch, and the rest of me is off the mat so for those full two minutes i'm on the back of my head and the bottom of my feet whistle blows we head to the second round same thing we head to the third round the same thing so for six minutes i'm on the back of my head and the bottom of my feet Uh, i think my neck is still sore to this day Uh, i was so excited when the referee blew the final whistle i jumped up and down as if i had won the match it was a home match everyone knew what was going on in the stands So they're jumping and screaming. Yeah, Spittler didn't get pinned. That's exciting. Joey was beside himself with anger. He felt like he had lost. And I'm dancing around as if I had won. And then we're called to the middle of the mat, and and the referee takes Joey's hand, and he takes my hand, and I'm ready to raise my hand in victory. And he raises Joey's hand. Because the reality was that even though I felt like a victor, because I was better, Than the others that had lost, I was still a loser. I still wasn't good enough. I still wasn't the victor. That's what we do with performance with Jesus, and performance with others. We compare ourselves to others, and we can always find somebody uh, that we can grab a favorable performance rating. Right? You know, we I'm better than you at this. I'm better than you at that. I might be worse than you at this, but I'm better at, at. than than this, right, in that area. So performance, we can always find somebody we're we're better than. But the reality is none of us good enough for Jesus Christ. It's not. That's why we have to have the perfect one. We prefer performance over love because we feel like we can control performance and, and love is just, it's not controllable. My friends prefer love, prefer grace from Jesus Christ over performance any day. Performance might feel better for a season, but in the end, you're still on your back, and someone else is the winner. The third reason we don't want to run to love is that love hurts. You know, there's an, uh, another popular song from b- days gone by, right? The, the Nazareth uh, redid a, a song that was originally sung by the Everly Brothers. Love hurts. Love hurts. It wounds. We've all been wounded by those that we've loved. We haven't been wounded by love, though. We've been wounded by those that we love. Uh, Family members, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles, grandparents, sons, daughters. We've been wounded by those we should be able to trust. And so we want to avoid love. We've been wounded by those that we're in relationships with, maybe our husband, our wife, a romantic relationship of some other sort. Maybe we're wounded by just friendships that we've loved, and we've, we've been vulnerable with them, and then they've treated us wrongly. Love, love hurts. And so we, we run away from it. We're, it's, it's like touching a hot stove. You ever touched a hot stove twice? Well, some of us have. Maybe I have. But, but not on purpose, right? So you, you touch a hot stove once and you get your hand burned. You don't go back with your other hand and touch the same hot eye, do you? No, you run from it. And so our natural reaction to being wounded by love is that we run from it. We hide from that, that love. We don't want to be vulnerable and let ourselves be hurt again. But to love ourselves, to love others, to love God requires faith. Faith that, yes, even though we might be hurt, God's in the middle of it. It requires a courage to risk pain. Love will require some measure of risk. But remember, a God-like love isn't expecting a return on the investment. We don't love somebody because they're promising they will never hurt us or never disappoint us we will all disappoint each other right i'm going to disappoint you you're going to disappoint me that's going to happen we can't stop loving because we might be disappointed or because we will be disappointed love says that i will love you even even though even though i know that you will disappoint me. i will love you even though i know that you you might never return that love i'm going to love you anyway because we don't love in order to get a return we love because Jesus loves. Jesus has created us to love. That's the way we're designed. We're designed to be in a relationship, a pure relationship with him, a relationship of love. Lewis, C.S. Lewis said that there's um, There's no safe investment when it comes to love. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable, The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. And we don't want that. To love is to be vulnerable. One final thing. There's lots of other things that keep us from loving, but one final thing that I would mention now is that pride gets in the way of loving. We're so wrapped up in ourselves, it's pride. And where pride is what we lead with, when pride is our, is our name, when pride is prominent in a relationship, then love will always be compromised. Love will be compromised. The only way for, for love to be uncompromised, for love to be pure, is for there to be a humility that we lead with. Thankfully, the one that... Uh, That is, God did not let majesty and glory, which he had the right to all of that, he did not let that get in the way of humility and love as he sent his son to a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. In Hebrews 12, we're told to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, Scorning its shame. He didn't let the pride get in the way. He took the shame of the cross. He endured the cross, scorning its shame for the joy set before him. The joy of a reunion with the Father, the joy of a reunion with those that he has called his own, the joy of a reunion with those that he has died to save. There's one that is always giving us the perfect pure love, and only one. and That is the one that loves out of humility. That is one that loves uh, without fear of being hurt or wounded. That is the one that says, yes, I will risk, I will be vulnerable. It's the one that loves with grace and mercy poured out on his people. When Jesus lays out this greatest commandment in Mark 12, he's laying it out as one that has loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he, he's on his knees and he's praying, and his sweat as his drops of blood, and he said, "If there's any way this cup can pass from me, let it be so. But even so, not my will, but your will be done." He submitted his will to the will of the Father in love. He's one that has already fulfilled not just loving God, the Father, but loving himself and loving even me with that sacrificial love. Listen, we live in a time in history where hope seems to be hidden uh, where love seems to be hidden extinguished like like the candles at a tenebrae service but even though the candles might not blaze brightly there's still there's still hope and there's still love uh, we were as a family touring the cathedral at Notre Dame in Paris uh, several years ago many years ago and uh it's, if you've ever been there, you, you know what I'm talking about. It's a glorious structure. I mean, the beauty of the architecture is amazing. Then you get inside and you begin to see these gold, uh, these gold hats and the the gold staffs and all the the gold implements, and and it begins to get a little bit gaudy, really. And one of my children was asking how it is that that the the pastors get to wear those those gaudy golden hats. I didn't have an answer for that. Uh, we began to uh, to, to go on around the hall and the Great Hall in and, and our tour of, of Notre Dame, and we came across these huge uh, statues of saints. And in front of every statue of every saint, there was row after row after row of these votive candles, okay? These little bitty candles that somebody probably paid 10 francs for, and, and then they would light it, and they would put it in front of this saint, and they would pray to the saint for their loved one, maybe for their loved one to, uh, to be delivered from hell or something. I don't know what they were praying for, but something, and so there were, there were probably thousands of these candles lit in this place. And we're walking along, and the kids are behind us. And at that time, I think the kids that were with us in that in that uh, tour were um, eight, six, four, and two, maybe. And suddenly, I hear from behind me somebody say, "Birthday candles!" <sighs> and I knew exactly what had happened. And I turned around, and sure enough. A whole row of these votive candles had been blown out, and there was nothing but the wisp of the smoke going up. The candles had been extinguished. We made a hasty exit from Notre Dame. You know what's never extinguished? It's the love of God for you. The hope of God, proven out by his love, sealed by his love, is never extinguished in you. He lights a candle that will never be put out. In 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is never extinguished. He's proven that love on the cross. And he proves his victory over sin and death and hell as the tomb is emptied. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15 and in verse 51, we read these words. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Nothing can extinguish the light of Jesus Christ, the love that he has for you and you and you. So when I say it again, Christ is risen, how would you respond? He's risen indeed. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Father God, thank you for the the love that you have showered on us, that you have proven to us again as we come to this Easter celebration. Oh, Father, I pray that that not only in, in our church but in our families and in our world that your love would lead. Lord, that you would help us as believers in Christ to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love ourselves as you love us and to love others as we love ourselves. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that hasn't met you, that has doubted your love, Lord, I pray that that changes even now. Lord, that they would look to you and in their heart they would say, Jesus be my Lord. Jesus, take my sin and make me become the righteousness of God by your love. Lord, restore our hope in Jesus Christ, the Caesar. Amen.